American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. Visit us online at ashp.cuny.edu. Roscoe C. Brown, Jr. of the Graduate Center speaks to New York City teachers about race and the U.S. military during World War II. This talk took place on February 27, 2009 at the Graduate Center. I grew up in Washington, D.C. And Washington, D.C. was an interesting place because the schools were segregated, the hotels were segregated, the restaurants were segregated, but the uh, transportation was integrated. Uh, the federal buildings were integrated except for the restaurants. So I spent much of my childhood in the Smithsonian, the Library of Congress, the Corcoran Art Gallery, as did many other African Americans in Washington, D.C. At the time I was a youngster, Washington, D.C. had the largest middle-class black population in the country. And the essential reason for that was that the civil service, the civil service did have equal pay for equal rank. Now, sometimes African Americans can get to certain classifications. So with a large civil service population, a large domestic population that worked with some of the uh, Congress people and some of the upper income people, there was a solid middle class. Uh, lawyers, doctors, teachers, engineers. So that our, my experience was always fighting against racism and fighting to end segregation. Uh, I went to many of the rallies that you talked about here with Philip Randolph and others. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, my first introduction to activist politics was in the mid-1930s around the Scottsboro case and the lynchings, so that I and my fellow colleagues were very much aware of the racism that exists. We were also aware of the Nazi movement, and our view was that if the Nazis were that bad against other white people, against Jews in particular, uh, it would be worse for African Americans so that we were aware of the fact that there probably would be a war. In fact, in my high school, for a tradition of some, going back to the 19th century, there was what was called the high school cadets. It was a junior ROTC program that every male was required to uh, participate in. Uh, it was in the white schools as well as the African-American schools. As a matter of fact, I live in a, a block that was half black and half white. It was near Howard University, a middle-class block. The reason it was that way is that as blacks would move in, the white next door would move out. But the Depression came, and they couldn't move. So therefore, the lower end of the block was primarily African-American doctors, teachers, deans, and so on. The upper class, the upper part of the block was middle-class white folks. So that when we participated in this ROTC program, we would go to summer military training camp, not to be trained as officers, which was the purpose, but to play baseball. 
because the best ball players from all of the black schools in Virginia and Maryland and Delaware would go to this military camp because it had great opportunity for physical uh, activity for baseball uh, in particular. And we earned lieutenant's commissions. So by the time I was 18, I had already earned a second lieutenant's commission. So that the experience that I had with regard to Pearl Harbor, uh, I was a football fan too and a football player, and the Brooklyn Dodgers were playing the New York Giants, and uh, at the end of the half or thereabouts, they announced that Pearl Harbor had been bombed. So we knew that our time was limited before we were actually called to active duty. And our reaction was, let's get as prepared as we can be, because uh, what you were talking about earlier, the planned march on Washington, uh, which started in 1940 when uh, Roosevelt was running against Wendell Wolkey, who was at that time of such thing as a liberal Republican, a liberal Republican who came up with the concept of one world, that we should be interacting people, not be isolationists like many of the other Republicans were. And he also talked about equal rights. That put pressure on the Democrats and the Roosevelt people to do something about it. Now, recall that the Democratic Party now is considered to be the liberal party. But actually, the Democratic Party of the 30s and 40s was a split party. The Southern Democrats, who went along with some of the social programs like the WPA, and the Northern Democrats, who also went for that and the reform of the SEC, but were for easing up on the racial segregation. So that uh, Roosevelt could only do so much. Uh, and he would, he had black advisors. As a matter of fact, my father was one of Roosevelt's black advisors. He was in what was called the Black Cabinet, which were sub-cabinet officers who handled, quote-unquote, Negro affairs. My father, Dr. Roscoe C. Brown, Sr., was in charge of health for blacks all over the country at that time. So you see there was a emerging activity long before the March on Washington, the proposed march on Washington to move ahead. The, the key element in the 30s was stop lynching, anti-lynching campaigns. One of the great lawyers, Samuel Leibowitz, who was a Scottsboro boy, uh, boy's lawyer, became a very famous judge on the basis of the fact that he was advocating for, for equal rights and fairness. And fairness at that time was not to be lynched for something that somebody else would just go to jail for or maybe not even be punished. So that was the context in which I became involved in World War II. Then the question was the Tuskegee Airmen. One thing that wasn't mentioned in your folder, one of the demands of the uh, March on Washington that blacks have an active combat role in the military. Because basically the military's posture at that time, going back to a 1925 War Department study, the use of Negro troops, was that Negroes didn't have the intelligence, the courage, the uh, coordination, the ability to absorb technical material and to be leaders. That was the official statement. You can research that, 1925. So that was the context in which part of this protest was for equal pay in federal jobs to relieve segregation, but to have blacks in combat units. 
of the Air Force as Air Corps at that time, as is now with the premier branch, and it required more technical skill, more leadership ability. So they said, let's let blacks train to fly. And out of that, around 1941, at the same time as Roosevelt signed the FEPC, he did two things. He promoted the first black general. His name was Benjamin O. Davis, Sr., and he was in charge of black troops out in Arizona. And he created, ordered the creation, of an experimental group known as the 99th Pursuit Squadron to see if blacks could learn to fly and fight in combat. That is the beginning of the so-called Tuskegee Airmen. Then the question was, where would they be trained? The NAACP, fighting for integration, wanted them trained in integrated circumstances. But because all of the flight training was in the South in segregated communities, some people in the black community knew that we would never graduate, never be treated fairly. So therefore, uh, President Frederick D. Patterson, who was the president of Tuskegee Institute at that time, now Tuskegee University, which had a long reputation for science and engineering and agricultural research, the famous George Washington Carver, who helped to save Southern agriculture, taught there. He said, well, we have, uh, they had a civilian flying program, we had an engineering program, and they had their own integral African-American community, even though they were in the heart of segregationist Montgomery and uh, that area of Alabama. Uh, why don't you bring them here? So as a result, it was decided to train the black pilots at Tuskegee over the protests, interestingly enough, of the NAACP. And many of my friends who now work with the NAACP talk about the fact that they were wrong on that. They were right in principle, but in terms of actually getting pilots training, it would never have happened if we'd been sent into uh, racist circumstances. So out of that, they, they started uh, the beginning plane, what's called primary training, where you learn to fly, at a field about five miles from Tuskegee known as Moton Field. Last October 15th, Moton Field was dedicated as a national historic site by the U.S. Park Service. And if any of you go to Montgomery or Tuskegee, you should go there, and you'll actually see the hangars that our planes were located in. You'll see actual replicas of those planes. You'll see stories, uh, videos. You'll see the field that we trained to fly on. And that's Moton Field, National Historic Site in um, uh, Tuskegee, Alabama. If you go to the Internet and you put in Tuskegee Airmen, National Historic Site, you'll learn about it. Your students will learn about it. It's a good way to get a feeling for what it was like. So in addition, after we learned to fly the uh, biplanes, the uh, PT-17, uh, to learn to fly the larger planes, we had to have a larger field. There was no field, there was a field, Maxwell Field, Montgomery, but they weren't going to let the black pilots fly there. So as a result, they created the first affirmative action program in the nation's history, uh, 1.5, which was a lot of money at that time, $1.5 million program to develop an air base known as Tuskegee Army Air Base. It was designed the architecture, the engineers, the construction were all black construction engineers 
who had been working in and around Tuskegee. One thing that a lot of people don't realize about segregation, segregation wasn't always people being lynched and beaten. Uh, segregation involved integral black communities with their own economic structure, business structure, engineering structure, professional structure, and there were lots of professionals. That is the reason why uh, 95% of the black doctors were trained at two institutions uh, up until the 70s, Howard University in Meharry in uh, Nashville, uh, Tennessee. Uh, that was why much of the middle class were black teachers. Uh, one thing that's really disturbing from a demographic point of view, that at the time of uh, the Brown case decision in 1954, 13% uh, of the teachers in America were African-American. Today, less than 5% of the teachers in America are African-American. It is an unintended consequence of the result of segregation, of integration. Now, why did that happen when they... Federal court said you had to merge the black and white schools. The black teachers were fired. It's simple like that. Uh, they claimed they were unqualified, which was not true, but it was they were fired. Eventually, they set up procedures so that they would not be. In addition to which, were new economic opportunities for African Americans in uh, science and technology and marketing and business that no longer became the primary major in the historically black colleges. The primary major in the historically black colleges, as you know, is just like the uh, white colleges, uh, business and technology and uh, computers and that kind of thing. Even in African-American colleges, a, a relatively smaller number of African-Americans are starting to be teachers. And that's one of the things that all of us need to do in working with our students, minority and otherwise, is to give them the motivation, the insight as to what it's like to be a teacher because in our communities and in many communities, in the Jewish community, in the Irish community, the teachers were the role models in the community. And not that teachers can rap, but eventually we're going to have a situation where we need to have role models of people who have ideas and communicate ideas, such as you are doing. So that brings us up to the date of what happened. Then the question was, who's going to lead us? Interestingly enough, did I mention the first black general, General Benjamin O. Davis Sr., our commander, the leader of Tuskegee Airmen, was Colonel Benjamin O. Davis Jr. Uh, he was the only black to have graduated from West Point in the 20th century when he graduated in 1936. This is really a stain on America, and it can make you really angry about what happened. No blacks were allowed to go to West Point from 1896 until 1932 when Davis's uh, son, B.O. Davis Jr., went there. But while he was there, even though he was in the top 10% of his class intellectually and grade-wise, not a single social word was spoken to him. When they had dancing lessons, which they had to learn, um, they brought in the white girls from the community, and he could not dance. He had to dance by himself. So he's a man of tremendous uh, discipline, courage, and he became the leader of the Tuskegee Airmen. He was not the best flyer, but he was the best leader, and his discipline is what made us who we are. In addition to which, our training was facilitated by a white colonel by the name of Noel Parrish. 
And Parrish was a Virginian uh, who was an educated man, a pilot, who didn't believe the stereotypes about blacks not being able to fly. He said blacks fly like everybody else, stick and rudder, that they do the same kind of coordination. Um, science had long since shown uh, that African Americans had the same uh, normal curve of ability, physical ability, intellectual ability as anybody else, but they had not had the opportunity to develop it. Uh, Noel Parrish said on this base, which was a federal base, uh, there was segregation in the community. There was an officers' club for blacks. He would not have an officers' club for whites. He said, if you want to go to the officers' club, you go to the officers' club on the base. So therefore, he set a role model, and all of the pilots who trained us in our basic and advanced training were white. The reason is there were no black combat pilots to train us. So, and um, the overwhelming majority of them were fair in terms of evaluating our, uh, uh, our pilot skills. Some of them actually became great, great advocates because in addition to the pressure of beating up, uh, defeating those stereotypes that we couldn't do it, there was a quota system because there were only so many black pilots who could be trained because there was only one unit we could go to. Initially, it was a squadron. A squadron consisted of 16 planes, about 200 men, uh, and they're all men, uh, mechanics and pilots and so on. Yeah, they realized that that wasn't going to work, so they then uh, created three more squadrons, the 100th, the 301st, and 302nd, and eventually they merged into what was called the 332nd Fighter Group. But again, everything is a trial. When the 99th pilots first graduated in 1942, they had to train for a year before they were allowed to go in combat, which they first did in North Africa. But then they were one squadron, they were assigned to a white group, which is three other squadrons. And at their first briefing, they were given the wrong time to show up. And when they did show up, Colonel Davis said, well, what are your instructions? And the white commander said, you all guys, just, you all just fly. Just follow us. And as a result of not having good initial training, they didn't do very well. They didn't do, do badly, but they didn't shoot down planes and so on. So much so that the racist Southern congressman called Colonel Davis back to Washington to explain why this group wasn't doing so well. But as you know, history has interesting ways of changing the flow. On the very day that he testified, and they were saying that the 99th didn't shoot down any planes, they ran into planes over North Africa and Sicily, and they shot down 11 planes. So that refuted that. Plus the fact, they, as, as in every group, not everyone in the military was racist, although the, the military did have predominance of Southern officers because that was part of the tradition of the South, hail to the Confederacy. And uh, there was a, a, a fair man, O'Donnell, and he said uh, they wanted to send a letter to the president asking him to cancel this quote-unquote experiment. He said, I don't think you want to do that because there would be a social outburst, plus the fact you don't have any finite evidence. Why not just let this letter die, which never got to the president, 
and see what happens. So as a result, they brought the 99th together with the 100 and the 301st and the 302nd and formed the 332nd Fighter Group, and we were assigned to the 15th Air Force, which flew out of Italy. There were two main air forces that won the war. The 8th Air Force that flew out of England and bombed cities in France and northern Germany, and the 15th Air Force that flew out of southern Italy that bombed uh, Czechoslovakia, Poland, Austria, southern Germany. Uh, I have the distinction of being shot at at every European capital except London and Paris. <laughs> because our job was to fly over the B-17 and B-24 bombers that were delivering bombs to targets. Uh, and the targets were airfields, rail yards, defense plants. The targets were never civilians. But obviously civilians were hurt because of the fact that the, some of the bombs were inaccurate and there were people who lived near there. But most of the places were rail marshalling yards, airfields, uh, uh, tank plants, uh, other kind of uh, uh, manufacturing plants. And we would fly over the bombers to protect them from the German fighters who would come up to try to shoot them down. Uh, prior to starting our escort, on any given mission, maybe 10 or 15% uh, of the bombers would be lost. And whenever a bomber was lost, if you had a mission with uh, 300 planes and you lost 30, you would lose 300 men because there are 10 people on every, every plane. So our job was to protect the bombers. And that's where Colonel Davis's influence came over. That was given, that was our assigned target. He said, your target is not to be heroes, not to shoot down a lot of planes. Your target is to make sure those bombers get to the target and get back. And as all of you know from history, our record says that we did not lose any of the bombers we were escorting over military targets to enemy fighters. It may be an exaggeration, we had lost one or two, but the fact is, I never saw a bomber get shot down on missions that I was escorting, and I flew 68 missions over all of those various combat places. So in addition, our job was to strafe, go to low altitude, and shoot up airplanes on um, at airfields and to hit what they call rolling stock, which were trains moving troops and equipment back and forth. And we destroyed a lot of in, uh, airplanes on the ground. We destroyed a lot of locomotives. I myself destroyed about 12. You come down and hit the, the front of the locomotive and where the steam is, there were steam engines there, they blow up, boom, and you go through. And <laughs> basically, you main, hope you don't get hit. I got hit a few times, but basically you keep on doing that. So our collective record was such that uh, our group, uh, known as the Red Tails, because of the shining red tails on our silver P-51s, never lost a bomber. We shot down over 150 planes. We destroyed many, many trains on the ground. And we are actually the only fighter group in American history known to have blown up a destroyer. It so happens, coming back one of our missions, we ran into somebody in the Mediterranean Sea, and uh, there was a destroyer there, and we thought we'd take a shot at it, you get him. And so what happened, one of our shots were lucky, and it blew up the magazine, and the destroyer blew up. But again, with the racism, they said they couldn't do it. But again, evidence counts. We had gun camera film that showed this destroyer being blown up. So our record was such that um, 
on March 24, 1945, we uh, were involved in the longest mission of the 15th Air Force. Uh, 1,600 miles round trip is not much now, but then it was long. It was 800 miles, 750 miles to Berlin, and then back. It was the only mission the 15th Air Force flew to Berlin because it took us an hour longer to get to Berlin than the 8th Air Force that was coming across that we were going at an angle. So on this mission, uh, we encountered the first of the German jet planes, and I was leading my squadron, and I was able to see them, and uh, I made a quick turn and a quick decision, said, let's go get them. And I caught one of them in his blind spot and blew him up. That was the first jet shot down the 15th Air Force. Uh, my co-pilots also shot down a couple and damaged three more. And for that, we received the Presidential Unit Citation, which is the highest citation that any group could receive, and got national publicity because the black pilots over Berlin, the big headlines, Amsterdam News, uh, New York Times. Uh, and interesting thing about the racism of the time, when the Herald Tribune wrote about this, and they interviewed my wife at the time. She was 19 years old. I was 21. Uh, she said the the headline was "Negro Flyer not, Negro Flyer's Wife Not Surprised." <laughs> as though, whoa, as though, why did this happen? Why could we do this? And the, the final thing before I take some other questions is. Uh, I read a study yesterday. I do a lot of research on this. I have records of all the missions we flew, missions of uh, the combat. I also have studied the Germans. I have their books about the German jets and the planes that I shot down. I was supposed to meet the pilot I shot down, but uh, unfortunately he died before he was able to come over. But um, I was reading this report in 1948 about the chiefs of staff, Stratemeyer and Doolittle and all those people, use of Negro troops. And the question was, uh, the, based on that cartoon, the idea is we're all one and we're all going to have equal opportunity. And the question is, well, how do we do this? Uh, what units can we put them in? What can they do? And they were talking about them being uh, cooks and uh, ditch diggers, and maybe truck drivers, but would they have enough to be able to fix the trucks? And where are we going to put them? And to read some of the, what we now call racist language, not racist in terms of, you know, that they're baboons, but racist in terms of they can't do this. What can you expect of them? To read this from the highest people in the military, this was de it was classified for many years. You see why it was declassified about ten years ago. Is to uh, take some of the halo off of our great military heroes, including Jimmy Doolittle, people who were otherwise good, and they would say, "Well, this guy Davis, he's a bright guy, but he's not like the rest of them." That's what African Americans have always faced, that there's one who's really good, but the rest of them are not good. Now, of course, I'm talking to people in the 21st century. Uh, that's not the way most people think today. There's a regression number in Mike. But the fact is that in 1948, after we had won this war, and after African Americans 
There were 15 million people who served in the military, and 1.5 million African Americans served in the military. In addition to the Tuskegee Airmen, they served in the 92nd and 93rd Combat Divisions. They served in the 761st Tank Battalion with Patton. They were in the 555th Paratroopers. They were in the USS Mason, a, a, a destroyer that was totally run by them. To have that kind of racist terminology, but then realizing the climate of the time said, we can't really say this. They were all, most of it was, how do we say we want to give them opportunity, but we don't want to give them opportunity? How do we camouflage it? And they said, well, the racist press, not the racist, the progress, in that time, what was the bad word in the 19, late 1940s, early 1950s? Communist press. The progressive communist press would get a hold of this and said that we are really, they knew what they were doing, and they may not have known why they were doing it, but they knew, what they, they knew this wouldn't look good. And, of course, throughout the entire report, Negro, which at that time had been spelled with a capital letter, was spelled with a small letter. So it was very interesting. And finally they said, well, look, we'll just sort of let this thing die. Now, in 19, um, April of 1948, Harry Truman, who was the president based on a report from the Fahey Commission and some Congress people who put pressure on, signed Executive Order 9981, which desegregated the military. They didn't say desegregated, but there should be equal opportunity for all people in the military. And that's what this conversation was about. How do you provide equal opportunity at the same time deal with some of our stereotypes about what African Americans could do? But to the Air Force's credit, they did allow those who had gotten technical training, pilots and mechanics and nurses and so on, to go into integrated units. Whereas the Army, when they first started, their idea of integration was to have uh, two white platoons and one black platoon, uh, which continued right through Korea. So that we feel, those of us who live this experience, that, uh, you know, past this prologue, that we did provide some insight to how to make social change. We made a major contribution to social change. And what was it based on? It was based on performance. As people ask me, what is my reaction to Obama's election? I have a very simple statement. Competence overcame ideology. And that's really what the Tuskegee Airmen did. Our competence, our success, uh, help to break some of the stereotypes that we couldn't do it.